Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 through 58. Jesus said to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now before we move on to Jesus trying to teach in his hometown, which we're going to spend most of our time in tonight, I want to take a look at these couple of verses here, verses 51 and 52, that wrap up the last few weeks' teaching on the parables. Look again at verses 51 and 52. You remember in the setting, Jesus has been teaching, explaining the parables to his disciples privately. He would teach them in the masses, but then privately he would explain them. And, but now he turns to his disciples and he says, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. So he says to him, he says, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let me ask you a question as we get into this. Did Jesus need to ask them if they understood it or not? No, he understood whether they understood it or not. As you know, Jesus knows everything. He's God. He knows whether or not they're going to deny him tomorrow, whether they're going to uh, uh, be put put to death the next day, you know, and die for him. All the way through scripture, we see that Jesus knew what they were thinking. He already knew. So he doesn't need to ask them, do you understand these things in order for him to find out? There's lots of reasons why he's saying to them, do you understand these things? But I'm going to just bring out one aspect of that tonight. He's, just, he's showing them that they were now accountable to do something with what they knew. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit. There's a problem in Christianity today where we think if we can go to Bible study or a discipleship class or I go to church on a regular basis and I hear lots of sermons, that that's what's going to count for us. Folks, let me just tell you, when you stand before God, if you have never missed a Wednesday night Bible study, that's not going to do you a whole lot of good. If you say to God, hey, I didn't miss a Wednesday night Bible study, he's going to ask you what? What'd you do? with what it is that I showed you. Go real quickly to John chapter 13. In John 13, Jesus has just uh, washed the disciples' feet. There's a whole lot more going on in John 13 than him just teaching them about service, but we don't have time tonight to get into all that. But in John 13, listen to verses 12 through 17. It said, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Look closely. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus has been preaching and 
As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. James chapter 1. I'm going to give you one more verse that kind of, or passage that deals with this whole, whole concept here, and this whole topic. James chapter 1, look at verses 22 through 25. In James chapter 1, verse 22, the scripture says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. When Jesus turned to him and said, do you understand these things? And they said, yes. He said, well, first off, I'm now going to expect you to do something with this. And I just want you to understand that. What the Lord's been showing us, I hope by his grace, you've been trying to apply it and allowing him to make these changes in your heart and in your life. But there's also a second thing that I really think is necessary, especially in the age that we live in today in the church. Go back to Matthew chapter 13 and look at what he says, though. Not just you're going to be accountable for doing something with it. He brings something else out in it as well. He said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. As he's been showing them their accountability, now they've had their eyes opened, he cautions them not to reject all of the Old Testament teachings now that they're receiving New Testament truth. This is, this is a problem, folks. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's a problem in, in, in many churches and a lot of Christians because, unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And they get so focused on the New Covenant and the New Testament that there are a lot of Christians today that will only just read the New Testament. They ignore the Old Testament. There are even preachers out there today who will actually, some famous, who will say, we'll leave the Old Testament alone. We're just going to focus on the New Testament. I've heard even Christians say, well, even in the New Testament, all I look at is those red letters. That's what's most important to me. And I always tell them, look, Jesus said all the rest of the words, too, not just the red letter parts. He said the rest. It's all been breathed by God. But I want to just show you, and we're going to illustrate this tonight, and hopefully this will be valuable for you, maybe for conversations you might have with somebody down the road, or just be helpful for you. But you've got to break this mindset that God worked one way in the Old Testament and He's working a new way now. Yes, definitely the Bible says in the past He spoke through His prophets, now He's speaking through His Son. But don't think for a second that salvation was different in the Old Testament than it is now. God doesn't change. He hasn't changed how He saves. It's always been, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture tonight, it's always been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. The Old Testament all along has been showing us that the only way you can be made righteous before God is through faith in His provision for your sin. That's been that way, and I'll show that to you in just a little bit. But before we go any further, let me just show you how God's Word says that He doesn't change. He's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Go to Malachi chapter 3. In the 
last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. God's explaining to the nation of Israel why they still exist as a nation. Because they were so sinful, they should have been wiped off the face of the earth, but God hadn't done it. And in Malachi 3, verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Look at what he says. He said, the reason you're still here is because I don't change. I don't change. Write this one down and look at it later on. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right? Go to Psalm 102. By the way, as you're going to Psalm 102, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who was there at creation? Jesus was. All through the Old Testament, who kept making visits to the people? And it was Jesus when he would come. Before he took on flesh, he would come and make visits. We call them theophanies. If Jesus hasn't changed and he's been there all through the Old Testament, God hasn't changed. In Psalm 102, look at verses 25 through 28. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, God, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Again, does God change? I hope you understand that he doesn't. Go to Numbers 23 one more time. Let me give you one more passage that illustrates this, that God does not change. Numbers chapter 23. And we're going to just look at one verse, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Don't miss this. He doesn't change his mind. Has he not spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, that's going to be important for us because I want you to see, and we're going to look at this tonight, all along salvation has been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. The law was never intended to make man righteous by man's keeping of it. Rather, the law was to show man his sin and his inability to keep God's law and thereby drive him to God for his righteousness. Now, I'm going to read to you a New Testament passage, and I want you to go there with me tonight. I'm going to take you to a New Testament passage that lays this out, and then we're going to go back and look at a lot of Old Testament passages that show that this has been that way all along. Go to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 26. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 26. Verse 10 of Romans 3, Paul says, as it is written, look closely, these next verses are all quotes from the Old Testament. That'll be important later on. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, 
We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Look closely. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God that he's going to be revealing here has always been there. The law and the prophets have always borne witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, people would say, wait a minute, Jim, if righteousness comes by faith in Jesus, the Old Testament people didn't know who Jesus was. And you're going to see all along God had been pointing them to his provision for their sins. Yes, we're on this side of the cross and we now know his name. But the Old Testament people had all along had God been showing them, you're not righteous in and of yourself. But if you turn to me, I will provide for your sins. And that has been very, very clear. Look real quickly at Romans chapter two, verse 12. It says, for all who have sinned without the law, these are Gentiles, those who weren't raised Jewish under the law, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show, (coughs) excuse me, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Look closely at verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by who? By Jesus. The Bible is very clear, folks, that everybody is going to be held up to Jesus, and whether or not they put faith in Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament alike. Now, Go with me in your mind back to Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God began revealing this plan. When Adam and Eve sinned, God speaks to the snake in front of Adam and Eve. And he says, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. He's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. I'm sorry, he's going to crush your head. Listen closely. In that passage, when he says seed of the woman, it's not plural. She was going to have many descendants. But he said, the seed of the woman, it's singular. That seed is going to defeat Satan. God told him way back at the beginning. And all along through the Old Testament, we have been seeing that God was showing that there was going to be this one that he provided that was going to pay for man's sin. You all know Isaiah 53. He was what? He was put to death for our sins and and, and bruised for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by his wounds, we are healed. God has been showing that all along. Salvation wasn't different in the Old Testament than it is now. It's always been by faith and it all fits together. That's why... Uh, uh, Well, let me just show you. Go to Psalm 51. David even fully understood this. This was written by David, Psalm 51, after he had been convicted by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Nathan of his sin with Bathsheba. 
And in Psalm 51, listen to the words of David. Listen to what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that she was sinning and how she conceived him. When he was born, he had sin, is what he's saying. He's had sin from the day he was conceived. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Look at what David said. I'm guilty. And he doesn't say, well, I'll go and make a few sacrifices or I'll do something like this. What does he say? You've got to wash me clean. You've got to make me clean. I'm, I'm, I'm undone. I've, I've been a sinner since the day I was born. And that's just how it was and how it is. But you can make me clean. You can wash me. You can give me a clean heart. Salvation has always been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. Yes, we now know his name, but that one who was going to provide for man's sin had all along been proclaimed and prophesied about. It's been that way all along. There's no Old Testament God and New Testament God. He's the same God. And you will be wise if you've learned these things to bring out of your treasure that you've been given the old and the new. That's why in Luke 24, Jesus, on the day that he rose from the dead, that first Sunday, he meets with his disciples and he says to them, after he's risen from the dead that day, he says, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Still talking future. Yes, a lot of that was fulfilled in his first coming, but there's more, way more about his second coming. And Jesus said to them, everything still that has been written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Folks, I want to challenge you. Don't just live in the New Testament. Spend time in the Old Testament. Let the Spirit of God begin to show you stuff, things that you might not have ever seen before. Go with me real quick to Job. You're in Psalms. Back up one book. Go to Job 33. I don't think you're going to find a better preaching of the gospel in the New Testament than you'll find here in the book of Job, chapter 33. Listen to what Elihu says to Job, starting in verse 14. Because Job's been saying that it's hard to talk with God. Man can't talk with God. God doesn't speak. Well, he actually says God does speak. 
chapter 33, verse 14. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Isn't that awesome? God's going to get your attention sometimes by keeping you alive when you should have died. How many of you can think back to before you came to Christ, how you shouldn't have survived maybe the war or whatever it was. But God spared your life so that you would come to know him. Not only that, he uses sickness and trials in our lives to get our attention. But what does he say? If you would just do right. No, no. You need a mediator. You need a mediator. Someone that says, I've paid a ransom for him. And I sinned and I was guilty and I perverted what was right. But it wasn't repaid to me. He gave me righteousness. Folks, it's been in the Old Testament all along. Go to Micah chapter 6. As you're turning to Micah chapter 6, you'll see... That in this situation, God has set up a courtroom scene in this section, and he's the judge and the jury, and he's declared Israel guilty. Now they're trying to barter for what their sentence is going to be. They've already been declared guilty. And they say in verse 6, this is how they respond to God, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Well, maybe that's not enough. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Well, maybe that's not enough. With 10,000 rivers of oil? Maybe that's not enough. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Look at the response. Israel says, what do you want us to do? We understand we're guilty. Do you want us to sacrifice uh, calves? Do you want us to uh, give you uh, rams? Do you want us to give 10,000 rivers of oil? Lord, do you want me to give you my, my firstborn? Look at what God says. He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Hosea verse six, chapter 6 verse 6. God said, way back in the Old Testament, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's always been by relationship, 
not through the law. The law and the prophets pointed to this sacrifice that was coming to take away man's sin. But as we see in the book of Hebrews, those sacrifices had to keep being offered over and over and over all the time. Why? Showing that it wasn't taking away sin. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, the Hebrew writer says. Go to the book of Habakkuk. I know you go to that one all the time, but if you're not too tired of it, let me show you something else in Habakkuk real quick. Go to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2 and look at verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by what? By his faith. Folks, is there an Old Testament God and a New Testament God? No. All the same. He doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus was there at creation. Jesus has been making visits on the earth all along through the prophets and the law. They were testifying to the fact that righteousness comes through faith in God's provision for your sin as you humble yourself and say, I can't get there unless you give it to me. I can't have righteousness unless you give it to me. You have to pay for my sin. I can't. I want you, and God's all along said, I just want you to walk with me. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me and my provision for your sins. We are now on this side of the cross and we see who it is that is the one who had been planned all along, this suffering servant. That's why Jesus tells them that the wise scribe is the one who brings out both the old and the new. They work together. They bring more insight and understanding. There's no conflict. That's why I told you the New Testament is full of Old Testament quotes because they're all together. Remember, Jesus has come on the scene now. We've been seeing in our study of Matthew, back when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, how he'd come and says, you know how the law has said this, but I say. He wasn't changing it. He was just bringing out both, the old and the new. I had a person come to me last night after the study and say, I'm with you, but I have a child that says, well, I can prove that God's different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I said, how's that? They say, well, here it says an eye for an eye in the Old Testament. And over here it says, turn the other cheek. That means two different ways of dealing with it. And I said, that's the problem of just taking a verse here and a verse there. But if the person that's saying an eye for an eye had actually read the whole of the Old Testament and all of the law, that as much as God had said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as he was showing you are guilty. And if you do something, you should have the same done to you. He also said there are places of refuge and there's ways to be spared. And if you turn and grab hold of the horns of the altar, if you run to God, you can be spared from what it is that you're guilty of and what the retribution is. Is. If you put it all together, now we bring out the old as well as the new. And when Jesus said, when someone strikes you in the cheek, turn and give him the other cheek. He was simply adding to all of that and showing old and the new in the same way as you are guilty and you are deserving of retribution. God has given you mercy. You need to do the same for other people. Yes, it does say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but you got to read the whole of the Old Testament and see he didn't just say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. He said there's ways you can be forgiven and you can be spared that retribution. If you run to God, you go to those places. He set up his cities of refuge. If you go to the horns of the altar, you can be spared from what you deserve. Do you see it? Be, beware of those who will say, I can prove it. No, say, use the whole book. Use the whole book. And I hope by you guys coming to these Bible studies, you're starting to understand you got to use the whole book. But when you put the whole book together, it all comes together and it makes so much sense. All right. Now let's get to what we're going to spend time on tonight. Go back to Matthew 13. Look at verses 53 through 58. Now I'm going to tell you now where we're going to go in the rest of our study may surprise you. So don't just assume you think you know where we're going. 
In Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, this is Nazareth now, coming to his hometown, he taught in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother uh, called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now as Jesus goes to his hometown and begins to teach in the synagogue there, the people who knew him but didn't really know him were amazed at his wisdom and the amazing miracles that he was doing, but they rejected him because he hadn't been to school to be trained as a rabbi. Where did he get this wisdom? He's a carpenter. They didn't recognize that he had come from God and that the Father was empowering him. I'm going to show you real quickly that his own family didn't understand and his own disciples didn't even understand. Go to John chapter 7. You remember earlier, we've already seen in our study that when, when Mary and his brothers are coming to the house to get him to come out, they were there because they thought he was out of his mind. In John chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Yeah, but... Don't beat them up too much. Go to John chapter 14. You'll see that the same guys that have been with Jesus for three years didn't understand who he was. In John 14, look at verses 8 through 11. Philip says to Jesus, this is in the last hours before his death. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So folks, the, Jesus goes to his hometown, and they're like, we don't understand. And he, where to get this knowledge and this wisdom and this? He's not been trained. And they took offense at him. By the way, the passage in Matthew doesn't say that he could do no mighty works. It's just that he couldn't do many mighty works. Do you see it? Go to Mark chapter 6. Go to Mark chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 6. In Mark chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 6. And he went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? 
And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And here we see he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about, sorry, went about among the villages teaching. So here now he says he couldn't do any mighty works. But there he said it didn't do many mighty works. What I want you to understand is, and this will help us a little bit later on tonight, Jesus was able to do some miracles there. But the bigger ones, the greater ones, he wasn't able to do. Why? Because of their what? Lack of faith and their unbelief. Before we go to chapter 14, here's what we're going to deal with. Go ahead, real quickly. The disciples not believing, and yet Jesus took them aside and taught them the parables, assuming that their heart was not hardened. Well, their hearts weren't hardened. They just hadn't fully grasped yet. That they believed what he was saying when he taught them the parables, but they still hadn't fully understood that the Father was controlling him. They believed the teachings, but the, the fact that the Father was in him and he was in the Father, they hadn't fully grasped that yet. And you'll see, if you look at John chapter 20, uh, even though in Mark chapter 8, right around verse 30, uh, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and three days later they're going to kill me. I'm sorry, they're going to kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise. Chapter 9 of Mark, he does the same thing. Right around verses 30 through 32, he says it again. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then in chapter 10, he does it again. Goes into great detail. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to pull my beard. And then he says, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. They still didn't get it. In John chapter 20, though, when he rises from the dead, the scripture says they still didn't understand. Go ahead. Was that because the Holy Spirit wasn't opening up their eyes? I'm going to say yes and no. They're definitely when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell, they'll, they'll see they start to understand a whole lot more. And that's why partially in John 20, later that night, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit and empowered them for a while until the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. But at the same time, part of it was that they were still looking at things with human eyes instead of spiritual eyes. So to get into a full detail of why they didn't fully understand it would take in too many other variables and too many factors to fully answer. The short version is we have the ability because of the Holy Spirit within us to understand these things. So and that's where we're going to go tonight. Instead of looking at why did they not understand and why did the Jews reject him in his hometown? Here's my question for you tonight and where we're going to go. How much have you missed out on? Because you haven't believed in Jesus's available power in your life. As I was looking at this and I wanted to go into a full study at how they took offense at him. And I could show you how through the scriptures, how Jesus offended a lot of people. Remember when it says in John 6, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part on me. And the bunch of disciples left and he turns and he says, does this offend you? In Matthew 15, Jesus says something and the disciples come and say, don't you realize this offended the Pharisees? I could go on and on and show you all the places where people took offense at Jesus. But the Lord really began to speak to me and he said, Jim, we could spend all your time looking at how they and why they, let's deal with us. And that's what we're going to do tonight. The time we have left, it's a, it's go ahead. The truth, even today, is offending more and more people. Oh, it sure is. But we're not going there. <laughs> How much have you missed out on because you haven't believed in Jesus' available power in your life? That's what I want to get to. Oh, you might have seen Jesus do some things in your life. And all of us can tell of stories of powerful miracles that God has done. But are there mighty works that you're missing out on? Without building a false theology that makes us God and the true God our puppet, we must acknowledge that the scripture does teach that we miss out on much that God has for us or desires to do through us 
because of our unbelief. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 19 through 21. I'm going to just lay this foundation and show you a bunch of scriptures that I hope you write down and start to look at down the road. We don't have time to go into a full teaching on this, but I'm going to hit it hard and fast. I'm going to show you a bunch of scriptures that show there's more for us, but because of our unbelief, we miss out on it as well. In Matthew 17, look at verses 19 through 21. By the way, Jesus has just come from Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples all except Peter, James, and John, had been trying to cast this one demon out of this boy, and they weren't able. So then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith of, like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Go back to John chapter 14, that section we were just in. Jesus says something right after the passage where we just stopped reading. We'll pick back up where we were in the middle of it. In John 14, look at verses 10 through 14. In John chapter 14, verse 10, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, listen, in my name, I will do it. That's pretty powerful stuff, don't you think? Now, a couple of things I want to pull out from here before we show you a couple other passages that say things like this. One is this. Um, Jesus said, do you not understand that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? You do realize that when Jesus walked on the earth, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. And the Father lived within him and he was in the Father. Is anybody else, does anybody know anybody else that's got that kind of a relationship? Oh, I wish you had not said no. You all do. You all do. Keep reading in John 14. Jump over to verse 20. He's already said the Holy Spirit's with you. He's going to be in you. And look at what he says in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. That's why Jesus says in John 17, right before he goes to the cross, Father, as you send me into the world, so I send them into the world. Folks, the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father, you and I have now. We have been put into God. He's been put into us. That's what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Jesus said, in that day you're going to realize I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Folks, you are swimming in God. You've been baptized in Jesus Christ. You don't need a second filling. You don't need another baptism. You, but you actually need to be filled on a daily basis by you yielding to the full power that's already there. The Bible actually says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. It also says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ all the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ Jesus. But most of us Christians today walk around not fully understanding that there is a lot God wants to not only do in our lives, but also do through us, but because of our unbelief. We miss out on much. Again, the second thing I want to pull out of here is the danger, though, of those who are out there saying, because here Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. I'm going to explain in my name in just a little bit, but let me explain to you this much about it. It doesn't mean if you use those magic words. I've heard too many people say, in the name of Jesus, I command this to happen. Now, that's not what it's talking about. 
And you're going to find as we get into it tonight that in his name means that it's in line with his will and his purposes. And he has already said ahead of time that he would do it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Remember, Jesus said, I only do what the father tells me to do. The son does nothing of his own accord. The son does nothing of his own will. He went around in his father's name and in your father's name or in Jesus names mean with his permission and his authority. So don't think that in the name of Jesus is magic, powerful words that you get. Remember in Acts chapter 17, the seven sons of Sceva, they were trying to cast out demons. And they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. By the way, how'd that work out for him? So watch out for those who take this into you just say in the name of Jesus. And no, 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 that's not how it works. But let me show you some more passages that show we're missing out on much. Go to James chapter four. James chapter four. Look at verses one through three. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's writing to Christians. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. By the way, when it says you desire and don't have, so you murder, does that mean you actually go out and kill somebody? What's he really saying? You, you talk badly about these individuals because you, you want what they have and you just start to make, the, you talk to make them look bad. You, you back talk or, or gossip is a better way to put it. So you murder, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen closely. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, though you do ask and you don't receive sometimes, why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let me say something to you tonight. There is a lot of things that the Father wants to give you, but he can't until your heart is lined up with his purpose for giving it to you. I want to say that to you again because you're going to see this in the next passage we're going to get to. There's a lot of things God wants to give you, but he can't until your heart is lined up for the reason why he wants to give it to you. For example, if you know that your child, your teenager needs a car and you want to give your child a car, but the reason why you want to give this child a car so that they can get a job and drive back and forth to work, that's the purpose for blessing them with the car. But if the child's reason for wanting a car is, I just want to go party with my friends, are you going to give the child a car? No. But when the child understands why you want to give them the car and their heart lines up with your will, you'll bless them with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we ask God for stuff and it's stuff he wants to give us, but we ask it because how we wanted to use it. By the way, as I go into this next thing, there's nothing wrong with telling God what you want and asking God for what you want. Jesus prayed that way too. Paul prayed that way. People say, well, Jesus in the garden just said, not my will, but yours. And too many Christians are saying, I only want what God wants. That's not how Jesus prayed. Jesus actually prayed in the garden, Father, this is my will. <laughs> if there's any way you can take this cup from me, please, let's do it. Nevertheless, I lay that down, not my will, but yours, but I'm asking. By the way, did he stop when the father said no? He asked how many more times? Two more times, a total of three. We see Paul doing the same thing. There's nothing wrong with begging God and telling him what your heart's desire is. I want to party with my friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But in your praying, as you're asking God, keep in mind, he's going to start working on your heart. And he'll start to line you up with his will. And then the Bible says, when you understand his will and you ask in accordance with his will. Well, let me just show you what it says. First John chapter five. First John chapter five. Look at verses 14 and 15. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, it says this. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Did you catch that? If you ask anything according to his will, you know that he hears you. And if you know that he hears you in whatever you ask, that's in line with his will, you can, you can, you can bet the bank it's going to happen. Does anybody remember how Hannah prayed for a while for a child? Remember Hannah was barren and she wasn't able to produce a child, but she prayed and prayed and prayed. But then in her prayer, her prayer changes to, and God, if you'll give me this child, I'll give him to you. And the father says, okay, your heart's been lined up with my will. I've always wanted to bless you with a child, Hannah, but I have a reason for this child. I want to give it to you. And now that your heart is lined up with my will, you have it. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why the Bible says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's what it really says in the Greek. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Folks, too many of us Christians are missing out on so much more that God has. And please don't hear money and Winnebago's and stuff like that. But let me also tell you, you did see in James where it said that you'll spend it on your own passions. Sometimes we miss out on what God wants to do in our lives financially. And please don't hear me. There are too many Christians that have taken this to an unbiblical realm where if I just believe it, God will pay off my house. No, no, no. Faith does not begin until God has spoken. You don't put faith in what you believe really strongly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's lots of people that supposedly have faith in their religion. Is it biblical definition of faith? No. Because if it's not lined up with the word of God in his name. See, a lot of people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Does that mean they're saved? No, you have to believe in his name. What is his name? That he's God himself, that he took on human form. He lived without sin. He died in your place. He rose from the dead and he's the only way to the father. That's his name. And if you don't believe in his name, you don't believe in the real Jesus and your faith is in vain because it's not faith in what God has said. And there's lots of people that say they have faith, but no um, if it's not in what God has promised and what God has said. So you want to know how you can pray in faith? Find out what God said. Find out what God has said. Think about this. I'm just going to go down this road here real quick. Uh, if you Remember how Paul was being taken to Rome and on the way he's on this ship with a bunch of prisoners and God sends an angel and he comes to him and he says, even though this storm has been raging for this time and it doesn't look real good, you will preach for me in Rome. And Paul stands up and he says to everybody, look, God, whom I serve, sent an angel and he has come and he's told me that I'm going to preach in Rome. And he's also said that everyone that stays with the ship will survive. A couple guys started the little, little boat down the side so they can get out. And he says, hey, remember what God said? Uh, if you stay with the ship, you'll survive. But then they go through a shipwreck and they end up having a shipwreck and they make their way to the shore floating on pieces of wood. They get to the shore and they're cold and, and Paul's gathering wood, stick for, for a fire, sticks for, for a fire. And the Bible says that a viper was in the sticks and fastened on his hand. It's one thing to get bit by a snake. It's another thing to have him hang on. I mean, he's draining all his juice. And, you know, the Bible says that all Paul did was just shake it off into the fire. And he didn't run for a first aid kit. Why? Because God had already said, you're going to preach in Rome. 
Most of us today, we hear promises of God, how he promises that he'll meet our needs. He'll promise that he'll take care of us. Yet, between the promise and the ultimate fulfillment, we go through a shipwreck or a snake bites us. And we freak out. Most of us, if the snake had bought us, we'd be going, <laughs> bit us, we'd be going, <laughs> I thought I was going to Rome. I guess I'm not going to Rome. No, Paul said, you know, that would normally kill a guy. But it's not going to kill me because God's already said I'm going to Rome. And he had faith in what God has said. You understand what I'm saying? Just because God's made you a promise in his word, don't freak out if between the promise and the fulfillment, you go through storms. And you go through a shipwreck and it looks like it's not going to happen or a snake bites you or whatever it is. Listen to me. God will be testing your faith. Are you going to hang on to what I said or are you going to believe that I said it and I have to do it right away? And that's what I want you to understand. Many of us miss out on what God has said because we know what he's promised us. But then he allows a shipwreck or some kind of a tragedy to happen between the promise and the fulfillment. And we stop believing. You got to know what he said. And if it's in line with his will, and you know it's in line with his will, you know that he hears you. Now, folks, don't let your flesh run crazy with this, but also don't live a fatalistic, weak life of not asking God to do mighty works in your life because of unbelief. In the time we have left tonight, I want to show you two prerequisites of prayers that accomplish much. The first one is this, righteous living. Obedience to God's word and no unconfessed sin. Write this one down. Look at it later on. Psalm 66, 18 says this. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I treasured sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. If I treasured sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. If David's prayer in Psalm 51 was, I don't think it was that big of a deal, God, but could you wash me clean? Do you think God would have washed him clean? No. But his prayer was, I need to, I need to wash it clean. I, I'll acknowledge, I've been in sin from the day I was born, and I'm guilty. I did this, and I sinned against you. Unconfessed sin will keep you from having your prayers answered. You want further proof? We'll deal with it. Those of you that are coming to the marriage retreat, we'll talk about it in more detail uh, next weekend. But uh, um, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and look at verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, live with your wives... As in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. And back in the, you know, you don't have time to take you there, but in Malachi chapter 2, God says to the nation of Israel, you guys keep weeping and flooding the altar with tears, and you wonder why I'm not answering. It's because you've broken faith with the wife of your youth. You've acted like it was no big deal that you, broke, you had you got your divorce and moved on. Please, again, remember, God's a God who says, give me what you got. I'll forgive it. I'll wash it clean. We'll start fresh from here. But too many people don't understand seriousness of sin in their daily walk with the Lord. And the Bible says the prayers of a what? Righteous person avail much. We're all declared righteous by Jesus. But on a daily basis, we need to continually live with the confessing of our sins, the acknowledgement, agreeing with God and letting him wash us in the sanctification process. Those are the people that have their prayers responded to. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 19 through 22. In 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. 
By this we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Did you catch that? He says, if you are under conviction, keep this in mind. God knows your heart and he knows what's really it. So all you need to do is line your heart up. With, with confession, acknowledge it. If you're under conviction, the Holy Spirit and your heart condemns you, God knows your heart, so respond appropriately. And if you're in a place where your heart's not condemning you, you got confidence before God and you can ask because he responds to the prayers of the righteous. John chapter 15, verse seven. I'm gonna read it to you real quick. You can write it down and because I get a couple more things I wanna take you to as we wrap up here tonight. John 15, listen to verse seven. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Again, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit take it further now in each of your lives as you begin to really spend some time looking at these scriptures, allowing God to speak to you. First and foremost, what are some of the requirements of prayers that accomplish much? Righteous living, obedience to his word. Also, ask for what is in accordance with God's will and we'll bring glory to him. Again, 1 John 5 tells us if we ask anything in, in, in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us and we have the things we ask. James chapter 4 verse 3 said what? You ask and don't receive because you're asking to do it the way you want to do it instead of how he wants to do it. In John chapter 14 again, like we looked at earlier, verses 13 and 14. Let me read them to you again. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this. In verses 13 and 14, he said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now I'm going to give you one more. The first one is righteous living. The second one is asking things in accordance with God's will. And the third one is this. Believe that he hears you when you're obedient and trusting in him and living for his glory and not yours. You need to know that he's good. Know that he loves you. Pray in faith that his way is best, but ask. He wants you to. Now, by the way, if his way is best, is it okay if he says no? That's a big key in praying according to the will of God. Is asking, but saying, Lord, if you say no, I'm okay with that too, because that's best. Lord, as much as I want this, and as much as I think it's the best thing, and as much as I can't see any way why you would say no, if you say no, I so trust you, it's the best answer. That's, folks, let me tell you, how are you going to know whether or not what you've just been blessed with is from God or from you? Whether or not it was your flesh or whether it was the Spirit? How you do that is you lay it down. If he brings it back, it's from him. If it isn't, it wasn't from him, and it was of you. You'll see God do that all along. Jesus prayed that prayer. Paul prayed that prayer. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient. I'm not going to take the thorn away. At the same time, we see God bless Abraham with this son. And then he says to him, I want you to lay him down. And then when the father gave him back, Abraham now knew for a fact that this was from the father and it wasn't of him. Let me show you something in time we have left here tonight, in this four minutes we have left. Look at Psalm 34. This kind of sums it all up. Psalm 34, verses 8 
through 18. And we'll close with this tonight. There's more we could get to, but this is good. I bombed you with enough scripture for tonight. I've often wondered if some people are going to stand before God and, and, and he'll say, why didn't you read my word? And they'll say, well, I went to Jim's Bible study. And he'll say, okay, never mind. <laughs> Psalm 34, look at verses 8 through 18. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, what does it say? Lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Here's what you do. You keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord's against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You see that? Folks, let me just say something to you tonight. Here it says, taste and see that he's good. You got to ask. You got to see, you got to knock. We could have spent our time tonight dealing with how those people missed out on the mighty works because they didn't believe and totally miss how much we miss out on because we don't believe. What is he wanting from us? He wants us to go to him on a daily basis, to grow in our understanding and our love for him, to learn how to spend time in his word and in prayer, to spend time getting those areas that his spirit convicts us of taken care of through confession and repentance, which means turning away from it and not doing it anymore. And then we begin to move into a realm where we become one of those children in which he says, I want to bless you. Ask, ask. And I pray individually, you start to experience the things that God not only wants to bless you with, but the things he wants to do through you. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.